I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Peter Huff. Thank you. It's always my delight to be here. And since I will be departing for uh, perhaps three years, um, let me say how much I've enjoyed my association with this congregation and its leadership and members and visitors for nine years. I think my experience at Centenary would have been dramatically different had it not been for All Souls. Certainly my experience of Shreveport would have been (laughs) profoundly different. Susan talked about uh, some programs I helped to initiate if All Souls members had not been there to be a core group of uh, those programs, then uh, they would not have been uh, anywhere near successful. Uh, Plus my association with uh, World Religion Day, whose official headquarters, of course, is All Souls, (laughs) uh, has also been uh, a great source of joy and inspiration to me. Thank you also for hosting a few centenary students every now and then. Once or twice a semester, you see them wander in, and you can tell them from the parking lot. But they're always uh, curious to see what's going on here. Uh, Believe me, most centenary students have never heard about the UU tradition. Some of them, when I mention it, do want to find out about it. Uh, So thank you for being hospitable to them. Don't ever expect them to join <laughs> or stay along, you know, very long. Um, but uh, you never know. You never know. So thank you. Uh, they come unannounced, sometimes uninvited, I presume, but uh, <laughs> they always come back uh, enriched. And thank you for inviting me today. I've always enjoyed uh, the times I have to speak with you. And I hope I bring something different each time. I don't mean just a different topic, but something out of the norm for you. I appreciate this free pulpit, and I hope you do, and I imagine that's part of your uh, desire to be here week after week. It's, uh, I think, the freest pulpit in Shreveport, to put it mildly. If you, yeah... But that cuts both ways, right? (laughs) So I may say something today that uh, you're not fond of or you don't believe in, but that's part of it. If you read the fine print of your program, there's not only a free pulpit, there's a free pew. And I imagine there's a free door, and you can leave at any time. (laughs) But I hope you'll stay. (laughs) Today I do want to speak about Mother Teresa, since this is her... Centenary? I haven't said that in nine years. Centenary around here, right? But I hope you'll join with me and uh, reflect upon this uh, really extraordinary life. As the 20th century was drawing to a close, amid hysterical fears of the collapse of the brave new world of cyberspace, pundits were making lists list of the major events of the 20th century, the most memorable images, the most horrific tragedies, 
the unforgettable songs, even the craziest TV commercials. Most of the lists had to do with the century's greatest people. On these lists, you could find, usually in sets of 100 or 25 or 10, the dictators and the demagogues, the prodigies and the protesters, the geniuses and the genocides that made the last hundred years of Christianity's second millennium a period of unparalleled brilliance and unprecedented barbarity. On all of these lists, there were, of course, names of women. How could you account for the 20th century without recognizing the role of notable female leaders and pioneers? One woman's name in particular consistently made these centurial lists, even when they were whittled down to short lists of 20 or 10, sometimes even when it meant bumping out names of other obvious female contenders for 20th century distinction, such as Golda Meir or Indira Gandhi. The woman's name? Agnes Gonja Boyajou better known as Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She's Blessed Teresa of Calcutta to the world's one billion Catholics and simply Mother to thousands in the religious order she established, plus an untold number of devotees and imitators and cultures and religions around the globe. Her admirers have called her an icon of the Good Samaritan, a shining light in a dark and cruel time, peace in this world, Her detractors have labeled her a religious fundamentalist, a political operative, a primitive sermonizer, and an accomplice of worldly secular powers. She called herself a pencil in God's hand. All of us, she said, are but God's instruments who do our little bit and pass by. At the very least, Mother Teresa will long be remembered as the 20th century's most eminent nun. Present company accepted. (laughs) At the most, many say a saint for our times. And if a saint, then the Catholic saint with the greatest non-Christian following in history, with the possible exception of Francis of Assisi, one of Teresa's most cherished models. Mother Teresa embodied, as few others ever have, the countercultural values of the Christian gospel. She testified to the sacredness of every single human being, no matter what the creed, class, race, or mental or physical condition. And like prophets of old, she spoke truth to power with almost unbelievable humility and grace. No one can deny that Mother Teresa was one of the most remarkable women of a century boasting one of history's most impressive rosters of extraordinary females. Her greatness, however, lies in the way she transcended her century and its all too frequently unexamined assumptions. Neither communist nor capitalist, neither fascist nor feminist, she responded to superpowered demands and third-world rage with a quiet but confident no. Western claims to superiority, philosophical, political, and scientific, left her cold. Thoreau, equally unimpressed with modernity, would say she followed a different drummer. Her little bit 
on the world stage, as she put it, was one prolonged yes to God alone. Greatness, according to Mother Teresa's faith, does not come with birth. Aside from the majesty that accompanies the image of God engraved upon each human life. Mother Teresa spoke rarely about her childhood, emphasizing only the formative experiences that contributed to her evolving vocation. Born 100 years ago this August 26th, Ganja Boyajou grew up in the explosive Balkan region of southeastern Europe, worlds away from what would become her beloved India. During her 87 years, she would see nationalists, Nazis, communists, and terrorists reshape her homeland again and again. She learned Albanian in the cradle, was educated in Serbo-Croatian, and later adopted English and Bengali as her principal tongues. Raised a Catholic among Islamic and Orthodox majorities, she was acquainted with a sort of everyday ecumenism that still seems exotic to many of us in the West. Spiritual turning points came early. At five, Gonja made her first communion and began to experience a love of souls. By 12, she was set on a missionary career. Yugoslav Jesuit priests at the crossroads of East and West fueled a growing interest in international service. The newly elected Pius XI, the Pope of Missions, introduced World Mission Sunday into the liturgical calendar, established an ethnological missionary museum at the Vatican, and promoted non-European Christianity. He also canonized Therese of Lisieux, the wildly popular, only recently deceased, French Carmelite. Dubbed the Little Flower, Therese would quickly become known as the patroness of missions as well as the third woman to be named a doctor of the church. In her autobiography, she wrote, I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. During the 1920s, the risk and romance of global missions fired the moral imagination of altruistic young people who wanted to do good while still on this side of the grave. Gonja said yes to the missionary call and joined the Loretto Sisters, an order highly respected for educational work on the Indian subcontinent. She trained for a year at the community's headquarters in Ireland and then set sail for Calcutta, the administrative hub of colonial India. Like most nuns at the time, she adopted a new name. Anya's Gonja became Mary Teresa after the Blessed Virgin and the mission's newest heavenly advocate. For nearly 20 years, Sister Teresa, Mother Teresa, after her final vows, served as teacher and administrator in a local school for Bengali girls. I was the happiest nun at Loretto, she said. Mother Teresa came to India during the waning decades of Britain's imperial ambition and the crucial years of the Home Rule Campaign. Gandhi's influence in the Indian National Conference was on the rise, and his international reputation was rapidly taking shape. Civil disobedience gained more and more concessions from the British Raj, and the Muslim League increased its involvement in anti-colonial agitation. In this context, 
Mother Teresa fell in love with India. She became a citizen the year after the country achieved independence and for the rest of her life referred to India as our country. Happy nuns don't make headlines, though. Freeze the story here, and Mother Teresa would never become the consecrated counterpart to the likes of Margaret Thatcher and Gloria Steinem. An inner restlessness drove her physically and spiritually beyond the convent and eventually into the public eye. Not in the sense of that other 20th century narrative, the modern nun seduced by the secular city. In fact, Mother Teresa is largely responsible for re-energizing religious life in the last decades of the century, sparking an unexpected counter-revolution in the church. The restlessness she experienced in Loretto was rooted in a longing for more intimate contact with the people of India and a nagging desire to serve God without reservation. First, she made a secret vow to give to God anything that he may ask, not to refuse him anything. She was 32 years old, roughly the age of the crucified Jesus. Confronted with her Lord's hard sayings, she realized that moderate Christianity is a contradiction in terms. Writing of the bourgeois Catholics in her hometown, Thérèse of Lisieux had said, they knew all too well how to ally the joys of this earth to the service of God. Young Mother Teresa understood what the patroness of missions was driving at. Next came a mystical experience. On the 10th of September, 1946, now called Inspiration Day by her Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa received a call within a call. It was a second vocation, she said, a vocation to give up even Loretto, where I was very happy, and to go out in the streets to serve the poorest of the poor. Riding on one of India's famous trains from Calcutta to the foothills of the Himalayas, she saw in a flash the true purpose of her life, to renounce everything and serve the least of these my brethren. Nothing could have been more Christian or more Indian. Hindus and Buddhists find most recognizable in the New Testament what modern Western Christians find most annoying, if they notice it at all, renunciation. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake is incomprehensible to the suburban mind. Following the event of September 10th, Mother Teresa experienced a series of interior locutions and visions, all of which confirmed her new calling. Gradually, what she imagined was a new kind of religious order, conforming completely to the lifestyle of the Indian poor and bound by traditional vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, plus a special fourth vow of unsentimental service to the most in need. At first, there was no order, just the slum sister, dressed in her lone contribution to 20th century fashion, the now-celebrated white-and-blue peasant sari. 
Order, in a sense, was even questionable after the missionaries of charity were operating homes for the destitute and dying around the world. Nearly allergic to the modern fetish for technique, Mother Teresa called her community the most disorganized organization in the world. Evidently, she had never been to a UU church. (laughs) We should rank Mother Teresa with the personalists and anarchists of her era who resisted modernity's blind faith in quantitative solutions and put a premium on face-to-face relations and the simplest methods of association. The big way of doing things was not for her. To us, what matters is the individual. This is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Mother Teresa's offense against the century that called her great. Critics complained of primitive medical conditions in her hospices. They said the same thing about fellow Nobel laureate Albert Schweitzer's mission in Africa. Her indictment of abortion as the greatest destroyer of peace today alienated otherwise sympathetic audiences in the West, including the houses of Clinton and Gore. By the late 20th century, only animal rights activists put much stock in Schweitzer's once lauded ideal of reverence for life. No other issue, however, set Mother Teresa at greater variance with her contemporaries than poverty. Uplift, development, revolution, these were the 20th century's answers to poverty. Poverty was even an enemy against which one should wage all-out war, a natural idea for an age addicted to violence. What could be more counterintuitive to the modern mind than service to the poorest of the poor based on radical personal divestment? To be able to love the poor and to know the poor, Mother Teresa said, we must be poor ourselves. Mother Teresa was zealous about poverty for herself and her sisters. She kept her Nobel Peace Prize in a cardboard box and worked and slept in a room without a fan. One documentary shows her sisters ripping out carpets and turning off the heat in a newly renovated building donated to their order. Christopher Hitchens got wind of this episode and judged it near insanity put him down as one new atheist who wants nuns to wash with warm water. Mother Teresa said, Our rigorous poverty is our safeguard. We do not want to do what other religious orders have done throughout history and begin by serving the poor only to end up unconsciously serving the rich. Heroic Christian souls from Benedict Francis and Claire to Tolstoy, Dorothy Day, and today's liberation theologians have seen in their Lord's scandalous poverty the long-sought-after but rarely-tried key to personal freedom and real compassionate service. A few post-Christian seekers have discovered this same uncommon wisdom. Thoreau gave us the mantra for a worldly monasticism, simplicity, 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 Even Harvard's William James 
searching for a moral equivalent of war, hit upon voluntarily accepted poverty as the surprising answer. Listen to this passage from William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. Poverty is the strenuous life. We have grown literally afraid to be poor. We despise anyone who elects to be poor in order to simplify and save his inner life. If he does not join the general scramble and pant with the money-making street, we we deem him spiritless and lacking in ambition. We have lost the power even of imagining what the ancient idealization of poverty could have meant, the liberation from material attachments, the unbribed soul, the manlier indifference, the paying our way by what we are or do and not by what we have, the more athletic trim, in short, the moral fighting shape. When we of the so-called better classes are scared as men were never scared in history at material ugliness and hardship, when we put off marriage until our house can be artistic and quake at the thought of having a child without a bank account and doomed to manual labor, it is time for thinking men to protest against so unmanly and irreligious a state of opinion. That's William James, who died the year Mary Teresa was born. The earthly chapter of Mother Mary Teresa's prolonged and strenuous yes to God came to its conclusion in 1997. On the 5th of September, the night before Princess Diana's much-anticipated funeral, the power went off in Calcutta. The electric breathing machine at the Missionaries of Charity Mother House evidently overlooked by those medical inspectors, was useless in the attempt to revive the order's dying founder. A metal and plastic emblem of the age's unsurpassed vanity, it served as a mute and helpless witness to the death of a woman who many believed to be great and some think a saint. The princess and the nun would die like many of their centuries poor, in the dark, and beyond the reach of their century's promises. To the best of my knowledge, the respirator has not been requisitioned by Vatican officials investigating the sanctity of Blessed Teresa's unbribed soul. Machines can't tell a saint from a sinner. Thank you.